Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Quarantine, a podcast that tells stories of hope from Notre Dame in a time of social distancing. I'm Riley Knott, and in this episode, I spoke with Father Kevin Grove, CSC, about how we can keep faith and hope during the lockdown. Father Kevin is an absolutely brilliant guy and a joy to talk to. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. So for this episode, I'm here with Father Kevin Grove, CSC, who is a Holy Cross priest and at, uh, on campus at Notre Dame, who has been on sabbatical this year and a really good friend of mine. So Father Kevin, do you want to introduce yourself? It is just great to be with you, Riley. Um, because I've been on sabbatical, I've really missed being on Notre Dame's campus. Um, Riley had been my research assistant for a year, and Riley and I have been uh, in the same dormitory in Dunn Hall. Um, and so I miss getting to see Riley and the students of Notre Dame but we're all in uh, in sort of a digital verse right now. So we share that predicament. Yep. Father Kevin, where are you originally from and where are you at right now for the quarantine? So I grew up in Hobson, Montana, which is a town of 250 people. My folks have a farm and ranch six miles outside of town. So I've been teasing people that I started practicing social distancing from the moment that I was born uh, in rural America. But um, I've been a Holy Cross priest for 10 years. And this sabbatical year, I've spent in two places. So in the fall, I was the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. And then January through March, I was in Cambridge, England at the University of Cambridge. And I've actually come back to Berkeley for the last part of my sabbatical early um, because of travel restrictions and the outbreak of coronavirus in Europe. So I'm back in Berkeley, California, but traveled during those sort of semi-apocalyptic days through uh, European airports and uh, and whatnot to get back here and then to self-isolate for 14 days once I arrive. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sorry you had to go through all that and then you had to cut off your visit uh, over in Cambridge early, but I'm, again, so grateful that you're here to talk to me about this and to help shed some light on what we can do and how we can approach this, this epidemic and this pandemic. So, Absolutely. It's a, it's a joy to brainstorm these things. Yeah, absolutely. So to get us started, like I've been doing with the other episodes, I have a quote that uh, we chose together that I want to read. Uh, get your take on, and then kind of see where that conversation takes us. So the quote, this one is from Gaudium et Spes by Pope Paul VI, and it reads, as God did not create man for life and isolation, but for the formation of social unity, so also, also it has pleased God to make men holy and save them, not merely as individuals, without bond or link between them, but by making them into a single people, a people which acknowledges him in truth and serves him in holiness. So, from the beginning of salvation history, he has chosen men, not just as individuals, but as members of a certain community. Revealing his mind to them, God called these chosen ones his people. So, Father Kevin, the reason I kind of suggested this quote, and I'm, I'm glad that you picked it, was because of its emphasis on social unity and grouping all of God's people into the, like, his people. You know, that we're not individuals to God, we are his people, that we're all brought into the one family of God. And with respect to the coronavirus and the pandemic, uh, how individual we're all being forced to be, you know, we're all separated into our little family units, even masses are not are canceled. And um, we don't really have an opportunity to be God's people. Rather, we are just individually God's people is kind of how I see it. Um, so that's why I wanted to suggest it to you. What did you see when you first read this quote? Yeah, so in my theology classes, especially in foundations, I try to get my undergraduates to think about how it is they define the human person. And it gets right at this point um, that Paul VI mentions that God didn't create us for life in isolation. Um, and that point is how we define the human person. And if you think way back to the beginning of Genesis, there's this extraordinary line that in the likeness and image of God, 
God created man and woman. And, you know, creating something is an image is kind of a funny um, term for us. But the important part about an image, like if I were to hold up a picture right here, and it were a picture of Dunn Hall, where both Riley and I normally live when we're not in quarantine, um, it's not the actual building, right? An image points to something beyond itself. So an image is always that which is in relation. And so when God created us as likeness and image, the thing that defines human beings most, more than anything else, is our pointing to something beyond ourselves, to our relationality. Um, and so what defines a human person is our being related, and specifically being related in love to God and each other. And so our very creation sort of moves us away from self-isolation. Um, and sin, or at least as uh, my, one of my favorites, St. Augustine described it, is a soul curved in on itself, right? We become self-isolated, locked in ourselves, not relating anymore to one another and to God. Now, um, of course, the coronavirus and the necessary isolation that's come about from it, and don't hear me wrongly, I'm all in favor of the social distancing to flatten the curve, of course, reminds us precisely how created for relation we really are. And so Paul VI is really extraordinary because these days have brought out real questions of what does it mean for us to belong to a church together um, when you know we can't pray but digitally, really? Um, and some sacraments have to be done in person, right? Like you can't get digitally married and you can't go to confession digitally. Like those require real human contact. So it's brought big questions about what it means for us to be together. And we've come to realize, I think, especially during this Holy Week, that we can experience physical isolation but there is a spiritual isolation that doesn't have to rule the day. Um, and so the creativity of various people um, around the world in working on that has been a profound thing. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. And I agree. I've seen so many things talking about, you know, graphics that have the beautiful spiritual prayer for spiritual communion and, um, Notre Dame's Basilica has been really good about publishing resources and trying to keep, especially the students connected to their faith uh, and the faith of that we had on campus. And so it's, you know, there has been like already a creative explosion of ways to remain faithful and to remain attached and to remain theologically participants in or theological participants in, you know, the faith that we all love and cherish, but that is different now than it has been, you know, before in our lives. And so I guess uh, kind of a natural segue then is you specifically, uh, you mentioned earlier that you had to social, you had to self-isolate when you got back from, from England. and um, because you're in Berkeley, I'm assuming that was entirely by yourself in, you know, alone. That feels to me, especially for you, someone who I know is uh, a valuable and leader in the Dunhall community. And of course, like your very vocation as a priest is to be with people and to, uh, you know, cultivate worship and to cultivate faith in those around you. What was that experience like for you? And what kind of um, forces did you experience? You know, like the dissonance, that sort of stuff. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, it's a great question, and I want to treat the question itself, though I have to confess a little bit. Holy Cross has a house for researchers, and it's here in Berkeley, so I'm actually blessed to be living in a building with four other priests, two doctoral students, um, one on sabbatical, and one high school teacher. Um, so we're able to provide support for one another while sort of living in rooms kind of distantly, so 
I wasn't totally alone. Um, but I have two points to make really about um, that sort of spiritual isolation for me and how to think about it. And I think one really powerful image of it comes first. So one sort of image, and then the second is gonna be about words. And the image has to do with Pope Francis. He went out and gave an Orbi et Orbi for, for the um, city and the world, blessing. And he did it in St. Peter's Square just a week ago. And he normally only, this only happens in the Catholic Church at Easter and Christmas. And he does it from his papal balcony and there are 70,000 people down in St. Peter's Square. But Pope Francis did this last week in the dark in an empty St. Peter's Square with the doors of St. Peter's Basilica wide open. And you could see all the way back to that window of the Holy Spirit. It's like hundreds of yards. It's a huge church. And he walked out and blessed the world with the Blessed Sacrament. So with the monstrance, sort of an, an, a communion of, of souls and spirits there. But he also did something really important when it comes to isolation um, and thinking about quarantine. Is we're used to, and I would say it like this, we're used to thinking about, I don't know, especially in Europe, like cathedrals being sort of empty or not with too many people in them and kind of the state of the secularizing society, et cetera, et cetera. Pope Francis did something extraordinary. In a completely isolated, dark place, he brought light and Christ to the middle of it. And all of a sudden, the whole world tuned in. And there was this kind of frail man. He's only got one lung. He walks with kind of a limp. You know, coronavirus would kill him, right? He's a vulnerable person. But he walked out into the Saint, into St. Peter's Square and owned the isolation and loneliness in a whole new way for everyone else. As if to say, if it won't go away, Christ and the church will join you in it. And it was powerful. Like that picture of him speaks a million words, not just a thousand words. Um, and it's one, like the images of that rattled around the world because that's what people needed to hear about how their God would be present to them. But I would offer one other thing, and this comes from my research, um, and it has to do with what it means to be together in our isolation. And it comes actually from the Psalm for today. Psalm 22 is for Passion Sunday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when the tradition thought about this, it's if you think about it for just a minute, it's a really weird thing for Jesus to say when he's dying on the cross. Because if you, like, if it were me, and uh, thankfully I'm not the Savior because I would be a terrible one, um, I would be like, oh, this is my great moment for a quotable quote, right? You know, Jesus could have said anything he wanted. And in that moment as he's dying, um, in the gospel accounts, he quotes. He doesn't come up with something original. He cites a psalm, which is one that he would have grown up praying with his family as a little boy when they gathered in the synagogue, when they were together. And now in isolation, he remembers that prayer that they said together. But it's a funny one to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because if Jesus is really God, he was never forsaken by God, right? And so we get into all sorts of sticky theological problems that you, Riley, know all too well about humanity and divinity and was Jesus really human and all of that stuff that people argued about in the early centuries. But the short answer is the way that the Christian tradition solved this dilemma, and again, this is a credit to St. Augustine, who's a pretty good theologian. Uh, he said, you know, the word spoke in our words 
so that we might speak in his. And Christ joined us in every experience of human life, all the way to the limit experiences of agony and isolation, in order that when we are in agony or frankly isolated, he spoke in our words so that we could speak in his. And so in our isolation, because we are in Christ, we are never alone. And so I've thought a lot about in my quarantine, how it is when I can't be face to face with the people to whom I normally minister, the words of prayers that we say together, even the Zoom conversations, that Christ spoke in our words and we speak in his can unite you and me, Riley, and Pope Francis, and those who've gone before us in this life, and those who are suffering alone in hospital beds in isolation. There is a communion that we share, and sometimes it's just a shared spokenness of the agony of feeling abandoned by God. Wow. So I'd offer those two things. Yeah, I mean, the first, I mean, both of those points, just hearing you speak about them uh, will give you goosebumps, I think, just about anybody imagining Pope Francis alone, you know, bearing that monstrance. It's, I mean, how can we, it's beautiful, that light amongst darkness, you know, that's, that's an image I think we all have to cling to during this time. And I think that's what you're saying is, I mean, that's absolutely beautiful. And thank you for sharing that, because I think that is something that a lot of people need to hear during this time. A lot of people feel in desolation. They feel that if they cannot, you know, take the Eucharist into their own body uh, in a tangible sense, that they're separated in some way and that they're not loved. But the reality is, I mean, that image that you also gave of, you know, Jesus, when he died on the cross, when he gave himself up, he was alone, you know, and he was isolated. And yes, along his journey, there are people there with him, but we are all lucky that we are, we have people with us, many of us. And especially, I know I'm very lucky that I'm here with a family that loves me and you're there with Holy Cross brothers and priests that will help you. And, you know, that's, we're very lucky to have that. And you're right. I think during this time, we need to continue to pray because there's so many people who are out there in hospital beds or on the street that don't have those people, don't have support systems that uh, people will pray for them and care for them. And it's difficult because in this time, you know, as Christians, I feel like we always imagine our duty is to go out and serve, to go out uh, to homeless uh, homeless shelters and places like that and help people that are less fortunate. But during this time, we are separated from that. We're not allowed to do that. You know, I, I'm still studying to be a doctor and the thought of, you know, there's a, I mean, thank God for the doctors that we have, but, you know, I want to do things. I visited in South Bend a hospice patient once a week and I love talking to her and helping to care for her however I could. But that's just not, you know, the fact that we're separated from that, we're not allowed to do that right now. It's, it's easy to think that God has forsaken us. And especially if you're someone who's in that position to think that God has forsaken you, that he's taken away these things, but you're right. I mean, he's still, he is still there. Jesus spoke for us so that we might speak in him as you're saying. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. And we have to continue to cling to that image of maintaining that there is still light among all the darkness around us. That's absolutely gorgeous. So thank you for sharing that. I mean, tying into that, I suppose, then how do you feel like your individual vocation to be a priest has changed during this time because obviously you're no longer saying public masses you're no longer allowed to go out and hear confession so how are you going about that yeah i mean it's certainly different um so i have a lot of zoom conversations just sort of pastoral chats um and you know, people can't go to confession by by phone or zoom but we can certainly have a conversation about what's meaningful right and how to grow um 
I've been over the long haul uh, and had been doing this before, doing consultation and recording a couple podcasts for this app called Hallow, um, which is a prayer app developed mostly by Notre Dame graduates actually in the Bay Area who are trying to create um, a way for young people in their 20s and 30s to grow in their prayer lives. Well, they started that about three or four years ago. As you might imagine, in the last month, it's gone bonkers. Um, and so, you know, they're trying to keep up with people's spiritual needs. So I've been helping to consult with them on particular issues of content and how to help people pray and still be faithful to the church and uh, creative and all those sorts of things. So that's one uh, point of it all. Um, the second is just to keep praying for people. Um, and so especially those who I know are elderly folks who are really shut in, I say masses for them. Um, and we'll send them a little mass card saying, I, you know, I'm praying for you. Um, and then the, and this is probably the most serious one is, and it relates to the last point, is the real commitment to abide with people in prayer. Um, because right now, like you know, if you look at coronavirus news, and we need to stay abreast of the news and good statistics, but it can become an echo chamber of fear, right? That sort of prompts stockpiling and despair in people. But a different way of going about a day is to really abide with people in prayer. And I'll give you just a little ex example. There's a very holy uh, professor I know in England, uh, and she's reached the age of 93 or 4. Um, she's amazing. And she just published a book last year. Uh, so, wow. I mean, serious, serious scholar and a Benedictine oblate. So she knows the spiritual life and has lived it for a long time. And we're friends. And I, it was one of the blessings of being in Cambridge. I got to get together with her on occasion. On occasion. Um, you know, at 94 years old, she's not afraid of a glass of whiskey. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, when we parted ways, we often talk about spiritual things together. Um, and what our life really means. And she's someone who has to come to grips at this point in her life with possibly going home to the Lord. And when we said goodbye, um, and when I had to come home early, I went over like right away the next morning to make sure I stopped there so I could say goodbye. Um, she said, I look forward to seeing you again. I don't know if it will be here below or not, but either way, we will meet again. And we committed to abide with one another in prayer. And her extraordinary confidence that, okay, it might not be on earth, but we will see one another again in heaven. And so let's stay in touch by prayer was just the right response. Because what that did is it cut out all fear. I mean, death in general is a scary thing, um, even for someone who's elderly. But that comment cut out all fear. And so one of the ways of like really abiding together is actually being present in prayer. And for those people who in the, have the very unfortunate and sad circumstance of having to die alone right now, they should all know that the rest of us are praying for them, that even though we can't be there, we're not alone. They're not alone. Uh, and so my priesthood has changed in some ways because I feel like I have to be a bridge builder more than ever. Though, I'm having to spend a lot more time doing that on screens than I ever would have anticipated. Yeah. I mean, this is a unique circumstance. You know, I, in the human history, I don't know that we've ever had this type of thing happen where everybody has to be so isolated, but we also have the tools that we have to remain connected. But I mean, I think that is a, I mean, an incredible story. And 
that woman sounds absolutely remarkable. And I mean, the confidence that, that she said that with is inspiring because there's no, I mean, the, it's, is a goodbye, but it's a goodbye for now, you know, with the, yeah. with the assurance that it will come, that there will be another hello eventually. And that, I mean, that's absolutely beautiful. And I, I wish that many people, especially elderly people had that same ability to, to fight the fear, you know, to, because you're right, the media, if you, if you are too in tune with it and you have it on your TV all the time, you will, it, it perpetuates fear. And so to hear of somebody in that circumstance who uh, has defeated it by, the, by means of prayer is remarkable. And I think that the best we can do, you're right, many of us, and I'm, it's wonderful to hear that you're doing this and that this is how your vocation has, has taken form is to, to maintain prayer with those people and to know that they're loved and they're cared for and to say masses for them. That's absolutely incredible. Let me, let me add one more point to that, Riley, um, which is this. I think very often, and I can say this in kind of um, simplistic terms, I don't mean them to be reductive, but sometimes um, distinctions help. We define our lives very often by what we do, right? You know, mm -hmm. so I, I am a lawyer, right? I am a politician. I am um, a professor, right? You know, like there's another way of defining ourselves and that's by who we are so this is a distinction between doing and being neither are bad right it's just that very often and if you think about just conversations with people what do you do what do you study what are you going to do when you grow up um this has really reduced um notwithstanding those who are you know this is not a, a comment about those unjustly going out without jobs that's a whole nother crisis but i'm talking about how we define ourselves spiritually um, and this crisis, even by the fact that people have to work from home, they're actually, um, it's changed how they relate to what they do, right? Someone's primary identity may not be going into the firm uh, and spending 16 hours in the office. That's all at home, oftentimes with one's family. It can be very complicated, and it makes us think about who we are. And so I guess when it comes to that bridge building, and this is not disparaging anything that any one of us does normally during the day. Of course, those are important things. Um, but this crisis has helped us to contemplate who we are and who we are together. And the sort of culmination of that bridge building is I want people to see how they are the body of Christ. And that that connects us even more than the professional association of Catholic theology professors, right? Or the American Medical Association, et cetera. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, tying back to the quote that we brought up, do you think that maybe, do you think that this pandemic, this crisis has the potential to awaken faith and to bring people, you know, maybe not bring people back in so much as to speak, but to bring people closer together so that when we're through this and we can all return to church and celebrate the Eucharist together once again, that people will do so with a reinvigorated joy. Do you think that that's something we could reasonably look to as something to get out of this with? Or like, oh, sorry, go ahead. <coughs> sorry, excuse me. No uh, it's not coronavirus, it's just in the basement room <laughs> with some dust. Um, no problem. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it could go either way, right? Um, I'm optimistic. There, You could always imagine, uh, you, I would use the corollary of education, right? that college students could be 
well, you know, we've had online classes now for seven weeks. What do we need universities for? Right. You know, so faith could work the same way. Well, you know, we didn't have to go to church for two and a half months or however long it is. Um, do we ever need to go back? I think in both instances, I think my university students have realized how much in-class learning really is pretty wonderful at the end of all things. Um, not that we haven't been able to cope well by Zoom, but, uh, and I think likewise the same of church. Um, I actually think that this experience has had the effect of making people desire, especially those current church goers or maybe infrequent ones, desire that physical location um, and their church. So it's very interesting that like the whole Catholic world doesn't just chime in to the same mass, right? Like we could have one live stream. It could be Pope Francis. They could translate it in every language. Every Catholic goes to the same church. That is not it at all. You've got pastors who have never before figured out how to, you know, like broadcast something of on like photo drop, uh, who are all of a sudden live streaming masses on Facebook with you know haphazard android phones and but it's because people want a connection to their own church and so i actually think the investment of people back in their local communities and this isn't universal but i've just seen so much of it is going to be really interesting and invigorating um, once the quarantine ends um, it's i um, am really optimistic about the ways in which this will produce positive effects for the faith. Um, now I think there will be added blessings of these times apart. I mean, all sorts of faith sharing groups and conversations have sprung up that have gotten going digitally and people will realize how easy it is to convene. You don't necessarily have to have an appointment for your you know, college guys faith sharing group because you can get together from all around the world. I mean, even if someone's traveling on business, they can zoom in now. I mean, it's going to be no trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that people will certainly return to the physical sites of their churches, but also there will be a whole new layer of interwoven web connection that will actually support those physical places. Yeah, I think that that's very well said, and I'm interested to see how we come out of this. And I also choose to be optimistic and just, you know, um, maybe one final note about me and then you could give some closing remarks is I have never in my life not been able to receive the Eucharist in a tangible form. I've never had a yearning for it that you read so many saints that live in, you know, Maximilian Colby that live in trying difficult times where they, they cannot practice their faith without persecution. And I get that we're not being persecuted, but the lack of access that we have is new to pretty much all of us. I would imagine, especially, I mean, Notre Dame's campus, I mean, most of us have all grown up at Catholic schools where we could go to mass every single day if we wanted to. And so over the past few weeks, I've never before in my life experienced a yearning for the Eucharist like I have now. And the realization that we are material creatures in this world and that we desire that material, that spiritual communion is so difficult for us to wrap our heads around because of the physicality of our, of us as beings. Um, has made us all the more dependent on these graces that you're talking about and these blessings that are coming and the prayers of those around us and the, and our prayers for um, those around us are that much more important. So, I mean, thank you for all that you've shared. And I hope that going forward, other people like you and I choose to be optimistic, but I think hearing this, I hope that 
somebody might hear this and that it might help them to cope, but that also going forward, once this is all over, might help them to understand how deeply they are loved and how deeply they are connected to God, even beyond the physical going to mass and receiving the Eucharist. Absolutely. I think that's right on, Riley. Um, you couldn't hit a more important point. Yeah. So do you have anything, last things to say before we wrap this up? I think that the beauty, uh, the last comment I would make is that the beauty of a God who became incarnate, took on flesh and dwelt among us, is that we have a God who knows what it was like as, you know, in some time in Jesus's 30 some years of life, he got sick and got a cold, maybe even worse, right? We have a God who knows what it's like to get sick, to have symptoms, like to, to suffer. Um, and certainly during the giving of his life, life, obviously. But that material connection with our savior is important. And it makes us apologize in a way to ourselves for the times we took perhaps sacraments for granted. But we realize now more than ever that we need material signs of God's immaterial grace. And God has not left us. God is very much with us. And we share that in speech in the ways that we have. But we pray ever more now for the need for sacraments and to be sacramentally present to one another, whether that's by means of our marriages, our holy orders, our confessions, the Eucharist, on down the line, right? Um, but to make God's grace manifest as often frequently as we can in a world where we have gotten this wake-up call not to take it for granted. Um, and that's a great bit of spiritual growth. That's wonderful. Amen, Father Kevin. Thank you again for being here and thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. I really appreciate yes. it. Stay healthy and let's pray for each other. Yes, absolutely. Thank you again, Father Kevin. For more information about Catholic social teaching and how Notre Dame is putting it into practice in the real world, please visit the Center for Social Concerns website at socialconcerns.nd.edu. To access a database of all works of Catholic social teaching, please visit convocate.nd.edu. For more information on how Notre Dame is responding to the coronavirus, visit coronavirus.nde.edu. For more information regarding specific health and safety guidelines in your area, please refer to your local authorities.